This podcast is sponsored by Active Skin Repair, a skin health company helping people heal with natural, non-toxic, medical-grade ingredients. Active Skin Repair uses a molecule called hypochlorous acid, which mimics our natural immune response to cleanse, soothe irritation, reduce inflammation, and support healing. We've been loving Active Skin Repair for all the cuts and scrapes that show up in the active toddler life. Sage loves that there's both the spray version, but also a cream version. He likes to get to choose which one he's going to do. He calls it the magic cream. And it's been so great for taking care of Mila's neck rash now that she's full on teething. Can we get a minute for a teething three and a half month old? What in the world? Active Skin Repair has thousands of five-star reviews and the ingredients so safe and clean, they can be used from the youngest member of the family to the oldest. Keeping it simple with one soothing solution for all your family's skin health needs. Visit www.activeskinrepair.com to learn more about Active Skin Repair and to get 20% off your order, use code VILLAGE. That's www.activeskinrepair.com, code VILLAGE, for 20% off your order. You're listening to Voices of Your Village. This is episode 182. In this episode, I got to hang out with speech-language pathologist Emily Lesher, and we were chatting about the phrase, use your words, and why it's not helpful to say to tiny humans in the moment when they're upset, when they're dysregulated, and what else we can do. Emily does incredible work at this organization in Massachusetts where occupational therapists are working together with speech-language pathologists. The cool part about this is that then SLPs, speech-language pathologists, are taking into account sensory regulation and the nervous system regulation when they're working on speech and language with kiddos. It's super awesome, and I've had the pleasure of working with Emily in real life. She also did a workshop for our Teachers in the Seat certification all about how regulation and language coincide and why we cannot focus on language development without talking about sensory regulation and how to help kiddos regulate their nervous system in order to access the language centers of the brain. So without further ado, let's dive into this episode. Welcome to Voices of Your Village, a place where parents, caregivers, teachers, and experts come to support one another on this wild ride of raising tiny humans. We combine decades of experience with the latest research to create the modern parenting village. Let's dive into honest conversation about real parenting challenges so it doesn't have to be this hard. I'm your host, Alyssa Blass Campbell. Hey everyone, welcome to Voices of Your Village. Today I'm hanging out with my friend Emily. She's an SLP and she'll tell you a little bit more about herself in a second, but I'm jazzed to bring Emily on. I've had the privilege of working with her in person in my classroom and she's working on some really cool jazz and we have talked her into coming out to Mama's Getaway Weekend to do a workshop. She's also a part of our SEED certification for childcare centers and home daycares and nannies. So I'm really jazzed for her to share more about what she's working on in the speech and language world that so closely is connected to everything that we do. Hey, Emily, how are you doing today? 
I'm good. How are you, Alyssa? I'm doing well, thanks. Uh, surviving pregnancy right now, but doing well. Uh, can you tell folks a little bit about your background and what you're working on now? So I am a speech pathologist. I've been working for, this is my 10th year. And right now I'm working pretty closely with some of our occupational therapists. And we're really thinking a lot about using language within this um, within this within play and kind of using language and how that ties to the sensory system yeah, that's like the dreamiest thing in the world if you follow along proceed for a little while you'll know that we have what I call the triangle of growth I totally made it up it's not based on research it's just what I've observed with kiddos and the only things I'm really looking at when I'm assessing their development and at the base of the triangle is our sensory system, sensory regulation. Like that's the basis for us being able to function and move through the world. And then above that, I have emotional regulation and at the top of that language development. That um, these are all going to feed into each other. And anytime I would see maybe a language delay in a kid, like then I'm looking at their sensory systems and trying to dive deeper. One uh, connection our village might enjoy is that you get to work hand in hand with Lori, our favorite OT, uh, quite a bit. You guys are at the same place. That's pretty rad. Tell me more about this model of yours and how you're tying sensory systems into language development. So we've been looking a lot at the idea of regulation, and that's a kind of a concept, especially within the speech world, that is not really well understood. So thinking about that quote-unquote being calm and how we are not necessarily calm on our everyday in our everyday lives, and you go out to the playground and a kid is looking calm or what someone might think of as regulated, and actually that's a mismatch as to what the environment's expecting from you. So I think, I think, I think a lot about this idea of, is our idea of regulation matching the environment that we are in? And we have been, I've been researching this a lot with one of my coworkers, Lauren, and we've been really thinking a lot about the how language and play and regulation all kind of come together and it kind of develops in this really nice developmental pattern of develop as you develop skills and you can see their play developing and their language developing it's also our regulation and being able to match the environment really starts to tie together yeah that makes total sense to me i i just want to kind of come back to you on what i think i hear you saying here that like there are some kiddos who were like, oh, they are dysregulated. They're off the wall. They're like a Tasmanian devil in the classroom, or they, they clearly look to us as though they're not calm. And then there are other kiddos who might kind of be like reserved or subdued and inside they're not calm. I actually was having a conversation with a mom recently and I was like, man, you're one of the calmest humans I know. And she was like, oh my gosh, inside that is not how I feel. She's like, inside, I feel like anxious. And I'm like, oh my gosh, are they going to be okay over there? Is he going to fall off of that when he's climbing, whatever? And she's like, inside, that's not how I feel. But it's how it comes off to the world or how I was perceiving it was that she's calm. And I was like, man, there are so many kids like this too, where it might seem right now like they're calm, but they're not. Yeah, I think this idea of you, you you mentioned the Tasmanian devil that's kind of going all crazy in the classroom. And I think that's the person, the person that screams the loudest often gets the most attention. So I think this idea of 
that necessarily isn't the only idea of dysregulation that you can see. And I think it's kind of being able to see um, both the kids that are talking way too much or the kids that are not talking at all is such a huge indicator of what this kind of state of regulation and state of emotional regulation could be. And I think that's kind of why I've been thinking a lot more about this play idea and how you can really tell a lot about their child's state of regulation by looking at what they're playing. And kind of if a kid is playing with something and then there's a quick shift from, and they're not able to play anymore, it really gives us a clue as to what their regulation state is. Ooh, I want to dive in more to that. I had like a kiddo come to my mind who had, was in my one-year-old classroom, had a language delay. And we had noted this, parents were on board with this. Like she was also second kid. So they had like a comparison here and knowing like, oh, our first kid was chatting a lot more at this point. And what we realized was for her, she was in a state of dysregulation a lot and she ended up qualifying for OT as well. But we, we noticed it in her play. She was one of those like quieter kids who for me as a teacher, I think for parents as well, it can come off as like, oh, they're so easy. <laughs> they aren't like getting in your way. They aren't causing a scene. They don't add stress to my life. Like she was somebody that we almost didn't have to think about. She was fine. She could like come over here and put on her coat and go outside. And it wasn't a big to do, which personally was really nice. And then started to realize she wasn't entering play groups. She wouldn't go up to the table and paint if other kids were there because she didn't know how to enter the social group. Um, and actually we worked with Lori on this a little bit and Lori was like, let's pull her in early from uh, being outside and playing and see if when she's the only kid in the classroom, if she'll go paint or if she'll go do the activities that she's not able to enter when other kids are there. And sure enough, like she could when she was more regulated. And I, I, that's exactly what came to mind. Is that what you're saying here? Yeah, I definitely think I think any time that you add other kids into the mix can be really hard. So this is kind of like the kid who, just like you were saying, who could play and do everything at their own house. Um, and they could have this wonderful pretend play and wonderful imaginative play. And then as soon as you bring them to the playground, they just sit there and they don't know what to do. And I think it's this idea that, um, and I, I always try to go back to one, if they have the skill to do the play or the language, um, and if they have the skill, then we have to look at why they might not be showing us that skill. But then I also think about if they don't have that play and they don't have that language skill, then we have to think about teaching that skill. So in the case that you were mentioning with that kid, if you had noticed when she went back into the classroom that she didn't have that play skill, then you have the, then that gives you a better idea of like, oh, I actually have to teach this level of play. When I put these materials out here, this is what I can do with them. Mm -hmm. um, but then she showed you that she was able to think and she was able to use the skills. She had those play skills. She had those language skills. So then you have to think about how do I navigate the environment to help her feel more comfortable, whether it's an environmental thing, whether it's a social piece or whether it's a sensory piece. So you can kind of really think back about some of those other things um, yeah. to see where you go with her. Yeah, that makes total sense. For her, it was organizational planning. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, totally. Okay. So tell, let's chat more about this. How do you, if a parent's tuning in, what I don't want for a parent right now tuning in is for them to hear this and to have a really calm, chill, quote unquote, easy kiddo. And they're like, oh shoot, 
am I missing something? Are they actually dysregulated? Because there's so much to obsess over and be anxious about in parenthood that I don't want to add more to that plate. Um, so if somebody's tuning in right now and they're hearing this and they're like, yeah, I do have like what seems like a calm, chill kid. What are they looking at to see, oh, are there skills that we should be working on and building that they might not yet have like language play, sensory, et cetera? Yeah, I think it's always something that I always go back to. I always try to think of developmentally where they should be. Cause I think everyone's always trying to think about what's next, what's next, what's next. And I think sometimes just being in that moment of whatever stage of play they're at or whatever stage of language they're at, just staying with that sometimes is okay. So I feel like that's a, it's a key thing to be like, oh, we, I put the blocks out and they're building a tower with the blocks. That's great. That's developmentally where they should be. So we might not have to think about what's next. I think if they're stuck in that for a year and not moving beyond that, that's when you want to look at, okay, what, what, they, what should they be doing next from that? But I think it's super easy to think, okay, I have to move my kid forward. I have to teach them a skill. When in reality, when we take a step back, that's when the pressure comes off. That's when kids are probably going to show us more than when we're trying to teach them like, okay, okay, you take those blocks here, try to make them, make them look like mine. <laughs> and they might not want to, and they might not, that might not show their best skills. So, yeah. Um, so what if you did have that kiddo who at home is like playing and going wild and so creative and you're like, whoa, like they've got this play part down and then you go to that play group or the playground, et cetera. And all of a sudden they're really reserved and aren't really sure how to navigate that. Yeah. And I think this is such a common thing. I think, especially early on, I think early on play is not, it's pretty, you start to develop it pretty early on and you start to explore with objects and you start to use them very functionally. And then you start to use them and put them um, more symbolically. And then you get some pretend play, but I think it's a system that's not really that well-defined in kids. I think it's something that, um, it breaks down really easily. So I think it's something that once you move it to a different environment, it's almost like you have to teach all over again because they can't generalize from one, they don't have the conceptual knowledge of what these toys are. Until you're about two and a half, two, two and a half, you really start to build a cognitive representation in your brain of what an object is. So once, and once you have that, then you can start to think about objects outside of um, the ones that are in front of you. You can start to think about, okay, I've seen this before. I know what to do with it. So until kind of that two-ish two age range, you don't have this knowledge of what these toys really are unless they're in front of you. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Being back to work after maternity leave has been so good and frankly, so hard. I love what I do and I missed collaborating with my team while I was out and it's been a tough transition. The combination of a packed schedule and still being the milk machine for me, Levine, it's hard to juggle everything. I feel so grateful for my weekly therapy hour. Sometimes I'm just holding so much and I need a safe space to let it out and get it off my chest. I've noticed that when I don't release it, it comes out anyway, but usually in ways that aren't aligned with how I want to show up in the world. 
BetterHelp is such a convenient, flexible option for parents who just can't take the travel time to get to an in-person therapy visit. It's entirely online. You can show up in your jammies, always a win in my book, and you can switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and you're on your way to feeling heard. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com voices today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot voices. It's so frustrating to spend the money and effort to buy your kids clothes just to have them grow out of the size within a week or have your kids complain that they itch, pinch, or just aren't comfortable. If you're with me on this, you've got to check out Posh Peanut. Their sensitive skin-friendly clothes are made from viscose from bamboo, stretch with your kid as they grow, and they're also made to last. Posh Peanut makes thoughtfully crafted, super cute clothing for kids and families. It is the softest thing, y'all. The design is all done in-house with different patterns, and it came in the mail, and I was like, oh my gosh, I want to wear this for myself every day. Their Lux women's pajamas and robes were all that I wanted to wear postpartum for nursing and hanging out on the couch with Mila. It helps so much that the fabric is breathable and chemical-free, which means they're delicate against Mila's sensitive skin, too. And I totally get why Posh Peanut is loved by over 1 million parents. Right now, Posh Peanut is offering our listeners 20% off your first order with promo code VILLAGE. Go to poshpeanut.com village and use promo code VILLAGE for 20% off your first order. That's poshpeanut.com village, promo code VILLAGE. So if you bring a kid to the playground and there's a thousand things going on around you, or you bring them to another kid's house and there's a thousand things around you, they might not see a toy that they know. And then unless they do that, then they might look like they're overwhelmed and you might not know what to do with them. Yeah. You might not know what to do with those objects. Totally. I'm thinking of like my husband started, he was at home, only child at home with his mom till he was four and then started uh, preschool and went part-time off of that. And at school was like not really talking to other kids at home like wouldn't shut up so chatty love to play he's one of the most creative humans I know and then would go to school and was very reserved wasn't engaging in like social play a lot etc and I think sometimes there can be this assumption that like oh because he was an only child or because he was at home with just mom that that might happen and I personally, professionally don't see that to be true, that like there are kids that walk into my classroom who at two or at five or wherever they are in their stage are just like, hey, I'm here, let's chat, let's play, whether they've been around other kids a whole lot or not. Um, and, and for him at home, like he had neighbors that he hung out with quite a bit that they would play like every single day and he was comfortable with that. But then in that classroom setting, it looked like he didn't have this language. Can you speak to that? Like what could be happening from a sensory perspective that even though he has all that language that at school in this other setting, he can't access it? Yeah. And I think, I think this is something that's pretty common. And usually I think this is kind of where the breakdown can happen that kids 
are talking and they're playing and then they're not in one one environment it happens so frequently and these are the families that probably their kids could be using a little bit more support to help them in that environment but because they're talking and they're walking they might think oh their their systems are intact mm -hmm. um so this is kind of where we might not get a referral until they're five six years old which happens so frequently at the clinic that i come is they're 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 talking, they're walking and everything else like that. But then this social stuff kind of comes in and it, it's not, they're not showing their, their best skills in those other areas. Yeah. I also, from a teacher perspective, like we'll often say like, Hey, this is what we're seeing at school. I think it's so huge for teachers to make sure they're asking and genuinely listening to what are you seeing at home? Because if they are seeing those skills at home, so often I'll hear teachers like discount this of like, okay, great. Like you think that they have all these words, but we're not seeing any of it at school. Almost like a, I don't believe that it's true sort of thing. And I think it's a teacher's job to make sure we're really listening to parents and trusting them in what are you seeing at home? Because if you are seeing a skill set at home that you aren't seeing at school, it's our job as teachers to figure out why and to get this kiddo support in moving forward in the classroom setting. Right. I think there's whenever there's this mismatch between what they're doing in one place and not doing another place, that's always when it's like something, something else is going on. Mm -hmm. And it may be a language piece. It may be a social piece. It could be the sensory piece. It could be a regulation thing. And it could just be an emotional thing or um, there's so many different things. And I think that's the key to think about is let's think about the why. So you never want to see this mismatch between something that they're doing outside at home and then outside in the environment. So you always want to look at why is this happening? And you might not have an answer right away. I think it's a lot of detective work of like just watching and looking. And I think that's the the key of what what I try to tell parents and talk to parents about very frequently is this idea of observing, waiting, and listening. So I've learned this through the Hannon courses that I've taken. And this idea of observing, waiting, and listening is really hard to do. It's really hard to just take a step back and watch. We're all doers. We all want to do something to fix it. Um, but we usually can get a lot of information just by watching what they're doing. Yeah, I think that's huge. Um, also, Hannon, I'll plug that too in the blog post, but it's a fantastic resource here for speech. Um, when I look at my husband now, I'm like, oh my gosh, it's, it was organizational planning for him. And it was definitely a sensory route. Like he, and I even see it now in like conflict. I was just coaching a client last week and we were chatting about um, partner conflict. And she is struggling to like, they have very different communication styles because she is like me where she's like let's go we're gonna chat this out we'll keep going i can process pretty quickly and keep firing my thoughts right i can like auditorily process and i can process the information coming in pretty fast my husband and her husband are the opposite we're like the more we talk when they're not ready the quieter they get and I think we see this in partners. We also see this in kiddos <laughs> where like we are filling that space and there isn't room for them to jump in and have a comment or when we're like emotion coaching, you see this a lot where people are like, 
what can I do to help you feel calm after we've just filled them with like five sentences where we tried to connect and validate their emotion. And then we're telling them why this is happening. And then we're like, and now how can I help you feel calm? And in their head, they're probably like, well, you could just stop talking for a second would be helpful for me to feel calm is literally what my husband probably wishes he could say on a regular basis. And <laughs> it took me a while to learn like, oh, he needs that time and space. And at this point for him as a 30 year old dude, that's not going to change. With our tiny humans, uh, after having the privilege of working with Lori on this, we can see change where they can start to process things faster if we can get them that OT support young. Uh, but at this point, it's really, and then it's looking at like, how else does that affect them in life? Which is, I think, the key part here. I had some people who reached out and were like, okay, so what? My child takes longer to process that information. They're still getting there. How is this going to affect them? And I mean, just today, my husband was going to be in a meeting and I was like, oh, it's like a big meeting. And I was like, what do you think is going to be coming up? What do you think their questions are going to be, et cetera? And he was like, I don't know. And in my head, I was like, oh, you have to know a little bit because otherwise it's going to take you a while to come up with an answer. And I've seen this with him, like it's harder for him in a group setting to be able to like throw ideas out and continue that conversation going because he needs time to like pause and process. And not all of our systems are designed that way. Yeah. I, so as we're looking at this with kiddos, I want to take a turn here and start to look at this when we have a child who's like having a tantrum or having a meltdown and we use things like use your words because we know that they have the language to communicate about this, right? If we know that when they are regulated, they know all of the words to say, but now they're dysregulated and we're asking them to use those words. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah. And I think I want to speak one second to a point that you were saying before of that yeah. idea of the language system, that language can be regulating to help kids know what to do, but then language can also be very dysregulating. So I think when we try to, um, the kids usually give us the clue that when you say something to them, they're like, they're going to scream, no, stop talking. And that's a really huge clue to that they, that language might be dysregulating to them in that moment. And that can be hard as adults to take on that like, oh, I'm doing something that's making them dysregulate and they don't want to listen to me right now. So that like sitting with that emotion is really hard to sit with that of like, oh, I'm doing something that may, that my kids don't need, even though I know this will help them. So I think, yeah. I think also what it can feel like for the adult is that like, oh, they just know they did something wrong and they don't want to talk about it. But some, and some people will say like, my kid never wants to talk about the fact that they hit their sister or the behavior aspect of this. Um, I actually have a podcast episode number, I think it's 105 or 106, that is when to talk about the behavior. Because so often we're filling them with so much language when they are dysregulated, whether it's from an emotional root or a sensory root, and they're not ready to talk about the behavior yet. Right. And I think about us as adults, we often, I often try to think about things that are acceptable for adults to do, but sometimes as adults, when we, when, when I'm dysregulated, I don't want to talk about it either. And that's okay. Right. So it's like thinking about this adult expectation that kids don't have to meet that 
meet a higher expectation than what we would do. I think it's, it's really easy to think we want the kids to do, we want the kids to talk about it. We want them to, to solve every problem. We want them to, when they hit someone to go back and say, I'm sorry. But I think we don't do that as adults. So why do kids have to do that every single time? I think if it starts to be a pattern, you want to think about how to, to address those things. But I think the keeping a expectation for kids where they are developmentally is super important. Yeah, absolutely. And where they are in regulation right now. Um, our very first Tiny Humans Big Emotions group I ever did, the like tagline that came out of it was like, talk, but less. Like we're talking too much to kids, especially when they are expressing an emotion. All right, so let's chat about this, use your words. Yes. Okay, so thinking about the idea of use your words, it often kind of, when I think about this, it kind of discredits a couple different things. So I think if kids, I always think about the idea that if kids had the words, they would use them. Um, so in that moment, they would use the words if they could. And then I think about another thing is expression doesn't have to be verbal. So most of our, like uh, probably about 70 to 75% of our communicative message is nonverbal. So thinking about uh, tone of voice, gestures, the anything like that is most of our communicative measures me messages are come out across as nonverbal. Um, so if we discredit that part, they're never going to learn some of those other aspects of communication. And it doesn't usually give a child enough information about what you need from them. So there's millions of like, by the time they're two, they have hundreds of words. So for you to say, use your words, it's kind of like, we need to be more specific about what you actually need for them. So if we want them to use a word, we need to be more specific of like, if they're crying and pointing to the milk because they want some milk, um, tell me what you want to drink or tell me, um, or giving a choice of like, do you need the water or the milk? Um, so something that's more specific than use your words because that has a thousand different meanings. Yeah, I love, I love that. And, and again, like back to us as adults, man, like there's so many times where I'm like, oh yeah, in a perfect world when I'm so regulated, this is what I would have said. But with kids, we're like, we want it to always be a perfect world for them. Like their responses, our, our expectations for their responses are for them to be perfect, but ours don't have to be. Um, I actually, in another coaching call recently, I had a parent who was, has an 18 month old and she was like, oh, I'd cleaned up the living room and I'd put this squishy ball up on a shelf. And she was like, I wasn't putting it away so that he couldn't reach it on purpose. I had just like was cleaning and put it up. And uh, then later he saw it and he's crying and he's screaming and he's pointing at it. And she's like, I know what he wants there, but I also know that he can say ball, please. And instead he's like screaming and crying. And she's like, I don't want to reinforce that. Like, oh, you can just scream and cry and point to it. She's like, so I don't want to give him the ball. But at the same time, I that's what he wants. I know that's what he wants. Like, how do I handle this? And I love your thoughts on this, but I essentially told her like, I would for sure give him the ball and would tell him like, oh, it looks like you want the ball. You could say ball, please, as I'm handing it to him. I'm not making him say it right now. I'm letting him know essentially like going forward, here's what you could say as I hand it over to him. Yeah, I think this idea of 
um, I, th I think this is a really important example because I think the best time to teach someone to have a skill is not when they're in this dysregulated moment of this in this high emotion because our brains can't actually physically access the information that we need that we want them to do because all the the chemicals are being flooded into their brain and they actually can't do they can't use the language um, so I think this idea of your ability with your program to think about, okay, how do I get calm first before I then teach the skill and do the problem solving that I need to do is so important. So the idea of giving them the ball is great so that they can then become calm. And then you can go back when they are in a more regulated state to then talk about how to problem solve through what they need to do. Totally. And there are going to be times I want to add this caveat because I know this question will come up of like, what if it was something that they can't have right now? Like I put this up and it's not a choice right now for them to have. Um, then I don't want to just hand it to them to make them stop crying so that they're calm and then we can talk about it. In this instance, I would, I would let them know like, oh, it's really hard to be able to look at it and not touch it. I'm going to put it in another space. And then when you're calm, we can talk about it. And then you might go through the emotion coaching steps of, of helping them feel calm. Um, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they will always get the thing. Cause I just like, as we were talking about that, heard that question already come up. <laughs> and this happens probably once or twice a week um, at, at my clinic with the kids that I'm working at is that it's really hard when it's something that they can't have and you have to say no to the kid. And and that is so hard. It's so hard for everyone to, to do because it's easier to give them what they want and move through the move through it. But then by by what by doing that, we're just we don't want to reinforce them doing that screaming and crying that they will get everything that they want. And I think when we think about early on babies that um, when they cry, we give them what they want because they don't have any other means to get that way. But as they develop, we expect that they can do other things to get that. So I think um, thinking also going back to that developmentally of being able to kind of change our expectations as they go along. So a kid that's not, that doesn't request anything, um, finally requests something, you want to give it to them. But then as they learn and have that skill, you can learn to, to set that limit of like, no, but you always want to acknowledge the intent that, oh, you want whatever it is. Like, you want that ball. You want that candy in the store. You want, you, you want to buy this, whatever it is. So we can acknowledge that intent, but then holding that boundary of not right now, or this is when we can do it, or giving them an alternative, something else that is acceptable at that moment. Totally. And I think that's where you just hit the nail on the head there in that it is setting and holding the boundary. So she didn't put the ball up because he couldn't have it. She put the ball up because she was cleaning and didn't even realize she had put it up. And so in, in that aspect, it's not like, oh, well, the ball was taken away or I purposely put it up so they couldn't have it. So yeah, go ahead and give it to him. And then we can chat with him later about how else to ask for that or that that was really frustrating. And she could even own like, oh, when I was cleaning, I put it up high and I didn't even realize I did that. Uh, next time, if it's up high and you can't reach it, you can say ball, please. Uh, but when it is something that they can't have, it's us knowing that, man, it's going to be so much harder, but we have to hold that boundary. Cool. Are you overwhelmed by the things that get in the way of you doing what you want to do? Are you looking for ways to simplify life to better align with your values? 
Do you want to create space in your schedule so you have room for more of the good stuff? Play, joy, relationships, gratitude, and more? If you answered yes to any of these questions, I invite you to check out Edit Your Life, a podcast to help you edit the unnecessary from your life so you have more room to enjoy the awesome. Through episodes with me, Christine Co., and a range of super smart, compassionate, and thoughtful guests, you'll come away with big picture insights and practical ways to declutter your home, schedule, and mental space without getting bogged down by perfection. I have always believed that small moments and actions matter tremendously. My goal is to help you find agency and space in your life through doable baby steps that will leave you feeling accomplished instead of overwhelmed. Check out Edit Your Life wherever you enjoy your podcasts. I'm Margaret. And I'm Amy. And together we host the podcast, What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood. Margaret, I would say you're sort of a where are my keys kind of mom. Correct. Sometimes a where are my kids kind of mom. (laughs) Well, you're Amy more of a we were supposed to leave 35 seconds ago, mom. I mean, touche. In each episode of What Fresh Hell, we come at a topic from our usually completely opposite perspectives. I bring the research. And I bring kind of the gimlet eye. Like, is that research really going to work, people? And almost 10 million downloads later, we're still laughing. We also talk to experts in the parenting field, plus parents with stories we can all learn from. We make each other laugh, we challenge each other's assumptions, and we have what we think is the best parenting community on the internet. Check out What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood wherever you listen to podcasts. So as you were saying, like they can't always access all of these words. What can you say in the moment if you have that child who is throwing a tantrum because they want milk and it's in the fridge and maybe you're not even sure what they want. They're just like crying in the kitchen and you're not sure. And you're like, oh, you, I think this is a lot where use your words comes in is when we don't know what they want. Uh, and we want them to use their words to let us know. I think this is, it's kind of thinking about making our best guess as to what their intent is. So I think um, this is where you can use your knowledge of your child, use your knowledge of the environment. So kind of thinking about what's kind of in the environment that you might, that they might be wanting right now. And then thinking about giving them some of those choices of they're at at the fridge and they're crying because they might be hungry of thinking like, oh, is there, do you want the apple or do you want the, um, the cookie or whatever it is. So giving those choice questions are so helpful because you're also in control of what those choices are. But then you can also, um, you're modeling the use of language that they could be using um, in the very specific way of what, when they say milk, that is really helpful. Um, but then also when the words don't come, giving them access to if they can point to it. So if if you're trying giving them some choices or, and then you can even go back to if they can't give you, if they can't answer the choices and that's not enough, kind of going back to like maybe a yes and no and offering them ideas of like, oh, is it, is it the milk? Is it the, is it that? And they may be able to give you a head nod or the, a shake and mm-hmm. knowing that in that moment, that head nod and the shake, that's enough of a message then it's like a word. So we can treat that as a word. Um, and adult, in addition, maybe some pointing, they can point to what they're looking for, show me what you want. Um, but sometimes that might not work at all. And we just kind of have to go back to let's, how do we, I always try to go back to that physical system of like, in that moment when they're 
they kids kind of work themselves up into these frenzies of like they're crying and they're screaming and all the words in the world might not actually work. So I think being able to look back at that physical system of let's look to calm them first and then we can give them some of that vocabulary of um, then we can ask them some more choices or ask them some questions to see what they might be looking for. Um, that can be super important too. Yeah, I absolutely love that. I love the idea of like, there are definitely times where I've said to kids, I'm not sure what you want. Can I give you a hug? And then when you're calm, we can try again. Letting them know like, I'm in this with you, babe. I'm not leaving you high and dry here. And I don't know, like we've played the guessing game for a little bit here and we can't figure it out. You're not in a space to even point or communicate in any other way. And you're escalating now and we're not moving in any manner. My job now is to help you regulate. And sometimes it's also like me being able to like pause and take a step back and be like, oh man, it has been two hours since we've eaten. Maybe they're really hungry and dysregulated and a hug isn't going to help them feel calm because they're really hungry. And so it might be that they're like in my lap having a snack while they're getting calm. And then we're going to chat about this afterwards or try again afterwards. Um, but it's, that's the hardest part for me is when you're like in it in the moment to be able to find that calm and be like, man, what could it be? Like, are they tired? Are they hungry? Looking at those sensory roots first um, of like, is there some dysregulation here that all the hugs in the world aren't going to solve? Right. I think I, I always think back to this, that a dysregulated adult cannot regulate a dysregulated child. Right. So I think that first thing is we really have to look at what do we need as adults to help in that moment um, before we can think about helping helping the kid. So even on an air, an airline, when they say that the, whatever those things are going to, oxygen, oxygen mask, like put yours on before you help someone next to you is kind of that same thing as like, we have to help ourselves first so that we then can be in a state to think about what, what they need. And that also leaves a huge moment. Like it, it leaves a lag time of like, this kid is still having this tantrum while you're trying to do that. And that's okay. I think that's, I think as much as we can be, we want to fix their problems, it's okay if they're, if they're not fixed right away. And it's so hard to sit with that though. Yeah, because we want to fix their problem because now we internally have a problem too. <laughs> and, and I mean like, yeah, the oxygen mask thing is so true and so hard to do because especially if you've had these babes with you since they were born, most of their like early years is actually putting their oxygen mask on first. Like if it was yours, you'd be like, great, then I'm just going to sleep and feed that baby when I feel rested and whatever. And, and that's not realistic. They need to eat all the time. You are sacrificing your sleep and your body and your routines and your patterns in order to keep a human alive because they're so dependent on us from the beginning. And then we can come out of this fog and they're a little less dependent on us to stay alive. And this is where um, we work with a lot of parents and like making that shift from like, yeah, you were giving a lot of yourself and sometimes taking care of yourself in that newborn phase is like changing your pants once a week or something like that might be it. And then down the road, we're looking at like, okay, now, now they're, they're staying alive. Now they're mad. Now it's not that they're hungry and they need you 
to eat physically sometimes need your body to eat um, but now it's that they're mad because they can't access what they want and that those are different forms of communication and now it is really important i love what you said that a dysregulated adult cannot help a dysregulated child <laughs> that is key I was just going to interrupt for a second because I I'm, I have this thought of what I'm thinking about. So you have this four-year-old child that's screaming because they want something. And it's so, my, my coworker Lauren always talks about this, but inside of a four-year-old, there's a three-year-old inside and there's a two-year-old and there's a one-year-old and there's a baby. So in, in that four-year-old, you have all these levels of skills of dependent and non-dependent within this level. So there's kind of this fluctuation of like, so they don't, they may not need me to put on their shoes, but they do need me to help when they're crying in front of the, in front of the fridge, needing me, needing something. So I think that's the, it's so hard to realize that this state of dependence changes over the course of an hour, of a minute, of a day. There's so many different times that as they're learning to be less dependent on you, there are certain, it's easy to think, okay, they've got it. They don't need me as much. But then when this moment happens in front of the fridge, it's sometimes hard to shift back to, okay, here's this, there's this level of a kid that still needs me. They're dependent on me in this moment. So it's super hard to shift out of that, out of those states. Totally. Absolutely. And I, I love that you brought that up because it, A, we all have an inner child um, that is going to come out and need more support in different areas. We saw social programming and biases that have led us to where we are in adulthood. But also like I, I remember coming home from work one day and I had my period and I had a long day at work and I was just like spent. I was so done with the day. And Zach was in his master's at the time and working full time. So he'd work during the day and do school at night. His world was kind of crazy. And I came home and he had dinner ready and we're eating dinner. And he was like, hey, Liz, after dinner, could you just do the dishes? I'm going to go into the office and do work. And I just started sobbing at dinner. And he was like, I guess it's a no in the dishes. Like, <laughs> of course, as like a regulated adult human. I know how to do the dishes. It's not a big ask for me to do the dishes when I get home and like have dinner made for me and whatever. But in that moment, like it just seemed like such a big task to do when I just needed to crash. And this happens with kiddos all the time that it's not that the putting on of their shoes or they're zipping up their jacket or whatever is something that they uh, can't do. Sometimes we're like, I know that they could do it. We see this a lot with maybe there's a new sibling introduced into the family, et cetera. And now we're like, well, we often call them regressions. I think it's really this kid saying like, I need a little more support right now because I'm trying to figure out what my new life looks like. And even though I knew how to use the toilet before, or I knew how to put on my own shoes before, now I just need a little more help. And I think everyone in the family in that time period needs a little more help. Uh, but being able to give kids that grace that just because you have this skill doesn't mean you always can access it if I as a adult can't do the dishes sometimes. Right. I, I had this moment when I was on a trip to Amsterdam this summer and I went and I was getting a train from Amsterdam to London and I got on the train and we couldn't find our seats. We were looking at um, what our ticket said and we could not find our seats for the life of us. We couldn't find. So I ended up sitting down in someone else's seat who they eventually came and said, 
um, you're, you're in our seat. And at this moment, I break down in tears. I have no idea where I am. I'm in a foreign country. I don't speak the language, which is pretty typical for our kids that don't speak our language yet. So I have no idea what to do. And I'm so dysregulated myself. And I eventually plop myself in the front of a car, sit there and thinking of like, I look to my boyfriend, I was like, I need you to deal with this and figure out where we go. And we eventually figured out we were on the wrong side of the train and we had to like get off on at one stop and like run to the front part of the train because you couldn't get to the other part of the train. But I couldn't access any, and I can problem solve through that. Right now you ask me what to do and I can tell you 15 different things that I could have done in the moment. Um, but I, but I couldn't access those skills. So yeah, um, it's huge. That's exactly this. That is the use your words. I feel like to a T like, yeah, totally. When I am regulated, I've got this. <laughs> and if I'm dysregulated, I don't. And that dysregulated can mean a number of different things. Um, and I think also, as we just noted there, anytime there's a transition for kiddos, like we talked about new sibling, uh, but it could be moving houses. We had a little girl who would, whose parents were going through a divorce and we saw she needed more support during that time. And I think if we think about ourselves as adults, I mean, Zach and I bought a house in June last year and by like August, I turned to him and I said, it was like, I just can't wait to fall back into a routine. Like we were so out of routine. We were even just the like, we're now driving from a different house to the same like appointments we would go to or to work or to wherever. And now I have to like look up the route. I have to learn something new that at that point before had been uh, something I didn't have to think about. And so when we're looking at any sort of transition, kids starting a new classroom, new school, even, and we get this a lot of like, but they're in the same school they've always been at. It's just a new classroom. They know the teacher, they know the kids, but the routines are going to be different. Where they're going is going to be different. We're changing things for them. And that's dysregulating. And sometimes from a regulation standpoint, time is of the essence. Like we just need so sometimes we just need more support in this time period. And that's not going to be forever. Yeah, I think I think about why why we use routines for kids. So we we use routines that are predictable so that they don't have to think about it. They just automatically can do certain things. So anytime that transition or routine changes, they now have to think about what they need to do and that thinking is taxing to your system. So that thinking is taking away from later being able to go into the school with without crying or whatever it is. So it's thinking about any time that you now, those routines are no longer inside of you. You don't know what to do. Now you have to think and it taxes your system to, to have to do something, even just the slightest bit different. So even the idea of like, I now have to getting a new car, like going into a different car than I usually go into, or often at our clinic, the, the kids are usually, they might be brought by one parent. And then that day, the other parent might bring them and it throws them off for the entire session. And just that simple, a simple person, it's not who, it's not the parent that's bringing them. It's not whoever, it's just the idea that they now have to think or do something just the slightest bit different, which puts it, puts this stress on our system and that stress does not allow us to go outside and do something new and access something that might be harder for them. Yeah, and I think one of the biggest things we could do for kiddos, if you know you are entering into a transition period, is to give them 
visual aid support and pre-teaching. So it might be a little book of, um, we had one family who was doing a new bedtime. They, they were moving from room sharing to this kid who's gonna be sleeping in their own crib in their own room. And so in prepping, this kiddo was two. And so in prepping the kiddo, they made a little book of what was going to happen and what this kiddo could expect. Because of course, the child's, the child's whole routine and, and system is going to change. They're like, we didn't know that sleeping in that room was even an option. <laughs> and now we're going to say like, yeah, that's what it's going to look like. And so of course there's going to, there's going to be what I consider question asking, which isn't necessarily in the form of a question, but it might be crying. It might be throwing their lovey out of the crib. They're going to be asking questions about like, what's going on here? <laughs> um, I don't understand this routine. And so they made this book. And then for a week before they started, they had a calendar and they had a little picture on the day that he was going to sleep in his new crib. And every single day leading up to that day, they read the book and they talked about it. And then the very last night of room sharing, like, this is the last night that we'll share a room. And then tomorrow you're going to go in it. It didn't mean that there was no crying, but it gave that kiddo at least a heads up of what's coming and what to expect. Yeah, I write social stories on probably once or twice a week. I write these social stories to help give kids what that expectation is for whatever skill you're, is hard for them, whatever you're trying to teach them, whatever might be new. Um, and I think that idea of having the visual aids and I think this can be something that really trying to make sure that those visual aids are as close to what the real representation is, is super important. So having like a stick figure of a person for someone that's one, they might not be able to know what that is. But if you put a picture of them, of themselves, they might be able to understand that. Yeah. Um, thinking about the idea of a photograph, try to use photographs as much as you possibly can, because kids don't really have a good representation in their mind of what things are. So it's not until they're probably three, four, when they can actually see something, see a picture of a dog and realize, oh, that's kind of like the dog that I have at home. Yeah, right. And and that, that will change come like two-ish. So any kid under two, yeah, photographs are going to be huge and uh, making sure that it's as close to that representation. And then it can evolve. And, and in fact, like from an imagination standpoint, um, I think should potentially evolve in, in their play and all that jazz. Um, but so I'm going to note here. Oh, we had, we had a kid, we have a transition schedule. We have two for purchase on our website. And we had a kid who the transition schedule had, um, it was like uh, pajamas that were red or a shirt that was red or something. And he was like, oh, but mine's blue. And he's just turning three. And so mom was able to say, yep, this picture is a picture of one that's red. The one you're wearing right now is blue. And sometimes you could wear a red one. This picture just means shirt. It can be any shirt in the whole world. And then could explain that to him because he was almost three and was at a place where he could comprehend that. But when we teach kiddos, like this picture means this in the same way that we teach them for sign language, like this means more. And oh, I guess everybody can't see what I'm doing. When I put my hands together, this means more. And when I'm shaking my hands above, this means all done. They learn those visual cues as long as we are consistent with our response to them. 
I, I, I like the way that you're saying you have to teach those, teach what that visual means, teach what that photograph means, teach what that sign means, because that is putting it, putting a, a visual schedule in front of the kid is probably going to be meaningless until you teach them what it is. And it may not work the first time. It may not work the 10th time, but it may work that 11th time or that 12th time that you're trying it. So I think keeping at it, keep working with it. And kids, kids don't have this robust language system to know that like I can do something once and then I've got it. It's kind of like going back to the idea of play that kids don't play with blocks one time. And then they're like, okay, I got it. I've got everything blocks can do. So then I can move on to the next thing. It's kind of the idea that like early on kids are playing with things 500, 600, 700 times. And usually the adults are the ones that are getting bored with it. Oh, we're going to read this book again. It's like that being bored. Like if adults are bored, that means the kids are learning. Yeah, totally. And it's the same with adults too. Like we don't, you know, it's not like you go to the gym and you're like, all right, I lifted weights once and now I know everything you can do with weights, right? Like, no, there's so much more here. And, and in order to actually build routines and habits and it, it takes time and consistency, man, consistency. All right. I feel like we have crushed the use your words here. Emily, is there anything you would like to leave our folks with? And can you let them know where they can connect with you outside of joining us at Mama's Getaway and uh, the SEED certification? So I'll, I'll give you my email so that they can connect if they ever have any questions. And I work at a clinic called OTA, the Kumar Center, so they can find us on our website. Yeah, it is the dreamiest place. I feel like I never stop singing its praises because it really does this phenomenal job of combining sensory and language together. Um, it's dreamy. That's fantastic. Awesome. Thanks, Emily, so much. We will put your email in the blog post. And Emily, thank you so much for hanging out with me today. Thank you, Alyssa. Thanks for tuning in to Voices of Your Village. Check out the transcript at voicesofyourvillage.com. Did you know that we have a special community over on Instagram hanging out every day with more free content? Come join us at seed.and.so, S-E-W. Take a screenshot of you tuning in, share it on the gram, and tag seed.and.so to let me know your key takeaway. If you're digging this podcast, make sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. We love collaborating with you to raise emotionally intelligent humans. Well, hey there, busy mama. Are you looking for ways to make your life easier, your home less chaotic, and at the same time, add more joy to your life? My name is Deanna Yates, and I'm the host of Wanna Be Clutter Free a podcast all about letting go of the stuff we don't need in our lives so that we can focus on what truly matters. Don't worry, I'm not going to tell you to throw it all away or make you feel guilty about keeping something you love, no matter how many other people don't quite understand it. But I will give you practical and, more importantly, actionable advice so that you can make progress right away. And you won't just hear it from me. There are amazing guests, too. It's like having your bestie in your pocket, telling you it's okay to let go of the things that are not serving you and your family in a totally non-judgmental way. So join me over on the podcast where we can work on progress over perfection for those of us that want to be clutter-free.